0: Happy Saturday. It is not Valentine's Day, but close. It is Saturday, February 13th, 2020. And you are listening to Morning Meeting. Michael, what did you get me for Valentine's Day? I know I'm only your work wife, but still, I have high expectations.
1: It's a surprise.
0: All right, fine. It better be jewelry or definitely not chocolate. Jewelry is fine.
1: That's every guy's dodge for buying time and the sort of inside they're saying, holy crap, I forgot it was Valentine's Day, right? When uh, I can say, oh, uh, it's a surprise. and It means it's a surprise that I'm hearing this just now and I've now got to scramble and go to the CVS or the Rite Aid or whatever it is and try and scrounge something together,
0: right? For the first time ever, I had a Valentine's Day gift purchased like a month before the actual day and it's thanks to one of our listeners who directed me to this e-commerce site in the uk that sells the mugs that monty don carries on gardener's world they heard me talking about how david's favorite tv show is monty don's gardener's world anyway i just spoiled the valentine's day surprise but let's hope he's not listening to this anyway so i'd like to thank you to tim one of our listeners uh for hooking me up i feel so accomplished
1: wow you have many admirers and enablers so that's good
0: let's hope david is satisfied with the new coffee mug i mean who wouldn't love it who wouldn't Well, Michael, we have a jam-packed, action-filled issue today, as always. Michael, Graydon suggested that this would happen. I wasn't entirely convinced of it, but isn't it odd to wake up and see that it's business as usual in Washington? And yeah, there's some drama, and yeah, sometimes it's super boring, but for the most part, we don't have to live in abject fear of the news anymore. So this is a good development. So as a result, our issue is, you know, it feels less cataclysmic than normal in the Biden era, don't you think?
1: It does seem less cataclysmic, Cataclysmic, although there is a cat in, this issue, in the issue this week. Do you know that?
0: I do know that, Michael, but please explain to all of us, including myself, why that is.
1: It's Larry the Cat, who I never knew about, but we have a very funny story out of the UK by Patrick Kidd, and it's about Larry the Cat, who lives at 10 Downing Street. He's been there for a decade, and he carries the title Chief Mouser, and I never knew this, but cats have had an official position at Downing Street since 1929, almost 100 years now, when the Treasury authorized a daily payment of a penny toward the maintenance of a cat to control the mice there. We've got dogs back in the White House and we've got cats in in 10 Downing Street. So there you go. There is a cat, which is not cataclysmic.
0: No, it's not. But Michael, you're making airmail look... Like, we're not exactly dealing in hard news. All right, let's get to something serious.
1: I'm starting you off a little soft. It's a little like Valentine's Day warm-up. Come on.
0: While we are dealing in frivolous matters, there are three young women in London you need to know about. Lady Amelia Spencer, her twin lady Eliza Spencer, and, of course, Lady Kitty Spencer, the fashion darling. And these are the three daughters of uh, Earl Spencer, who was, of course, the brother to Princess Diana. Now, they were brought up very quietly in South Africa, away from the, the media glare, if you will. Uh, their mother was Victoria Lockwood, and they got divorced. Uh, there was a lot of drama in their personal lives, and they lived in Cape Town until uh, relatively recently. Because of the crown, they're sort of in the public light again. They only have 10,000 followers each on Instagram. That will change. Uh, and two of them are now engaged. So there are going to be some royal weddings in our future. So pay attention to the Spencer girls.
1: So if I'm understanding you correctly, because I'm really bad at lineage, and that's all that matters in the UK, these are Diana's nieces?
0: Diana's nieces.
1: If Diana had nieces, Larry the cat would be interested.
0: <laughs> God. All right, Michael, please, let's move us along to the hard
1: news. Well, let's remember impeachment started this week and who knows where that's going to end up. However, you know, tied in with that, there's we all thought we were going to turn the page, obviously, by having Biden in Washington. And we have in many ways turned the page. As Alexander Stanley, our co-editor, points out this week, there's still, as she says, we need to talk about Hunter. What about Hunter? And Hunter Biden, uh, the president's son, made headlines this week when it was revealed that he's written a book, which he reportedly sold, got a $2 million advance for, which is going to come out in a couple months. And as, as Alexander points out, what, what we love about our candidates is often the thing that sort of can potentially undo them when they come into office as president. You know, we love Joe for his, his standing up for his family, for his, his pride and where he comes from, and his familial, you know, his, the story of his family. As she points out also, You can also have a blind spot with that, that, you know, Hunter's problems are not going to go away. The Republicans probably most certainly after what happens this week in the impeachment are going to find reason to sort of keep banging the drum about Hunter's perceived problems or what they perceive to be problems.
0: Okay, in my mind, Michael, I'm going to confess something to you. The images of Hunter Biden and Army Hammer have become inextricably connected. I don't know why.
1: Yeah, they become inexplicably connected in your mind, Ashley, because you have a bad boy problem. And I'm just, I've tried to tell you this.
0: You're so right. I kind of, I'm not supposed to say this, but like, you know, I, you know, Army Hammer is obviously controversial figure these days. Uh, You know, we we don't have to talk about cannibalism here. This is a family show. But I did, you know, back when he was in, what was the Lone Ranger? Totally into Army, not going to lie. And kind of into Hunter, too.
1: I just want to remind you, it's Valentine's weekend.
0: If we didn't talk about my celebrity crushes, where would we be in life? All right. Anyway. All right. Well, Michael, moving on to another hard news story. Should we talk about the Hampton Bays?
1: Well, that is hard news because it's hard to imagine. But yes, tell me, Elena Claverino's got a piece this week, right?
0: She does. All right. Look, Hampton Bays used to be sort of, can we say this? It was kind of like the Jersey Shore of the East End of Long Island. Um, but it was never especially known as like a hotspot for the uh, New York City cognoscenti if you will. And uh, Elena has said that it turns out that especially during the pandemic, A lot of Europeans have started buying homes there. And uh, it started with the Brandolinis, an Italian noble family who bought a home there 22 years ago. And now it's home to the malls, who we make the French perfume, Albert de Rothschild, uh, the owners of the Caudalie skincare brand, uh, and Elizabeth Holder, who owns the bakery chain La Durée. And there's also an Estee Lauder exec, uh, Olivier Beautry, who's out there. So now now it's being called the American Miniature French Riviera. Who knew?
1: What do they know that we don't know?
0: It's less expensive.
1: Hmm and beautiful. You reminded me, I saw this story this week, which I wanted to just like bring up quickly. You know, I love all things French and I'm always going to, but like one of the bad things that's happening over in France during COVID, you know, the French often complain about the Americanification of their culture. And one thing, you know, I've always loved about France when you go there for work and you have to go do meetings at lunch. You see people at lunchtime in France, if you go to their offices maybe for a lunch meeting, they never eat at their desk. It's not because they're too cool to eat at their desk. It's because they are legally forbidden from eating at their desk, right? There's the, the French labor code, the code du travail, which is more than 3000 pages long. And it forbids workers, employees, whether you're like in the airmail offices or working at Renault factory from eating at your desk, you you you, you are uh, required to step away from your desk and that you, you go into the 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 dining room or wherever, or the lunch room, and you sit there and you eat at your desk. You know, up until now, that's been great. And if you if an, if an, the government could come in and like if they ca- caught employees eating at their desk, they could fine you. But now, because of COVID they're encouraging people, of course, to eat at their desk to not go into these lunchrooms and and have the sort of the the have, the have the company provided meal. Change of culture happening because of COVID. Who knows if it's gonna stick? But I love this quote uh, in a piece by in, in in the in the New York Times by Roger Cohen. He quotes this woman, a retired translator named Agnes Dutin, and she says, It's a catastrophe to eat at your desk. You need a pause to refresh the mind. It's good to move your body. When you return, you see things differently. So I think if you're stuck at home now, it's just a reminder. as I keep saying, Brooke, we need to like step away, have a proper lunch in the kitchen and then go back to our respective corners of the house.
0: One of the great pieces we have in the issue this week is by John Preston about the scandalous British media baron, Robert Maxwell and Preston's new book about him. Michael, I don't even know where to start.
1: Let's start with the fact that John's a writer I long admire, author of one of my favorite books, A Very English Scandal, which became, I already love, but then, and most people know it because of uh, Hugh Grant sort of inhabiting that world, but especially then, I love The Dig, your other book, which became another great movie. So, and now you're back with, you've had a very wonderful week with your new book, Fall, The Mysterious Life and Death of Robert Maxwell, Britain's Most Notorious Media Baron. We're so excited to have you because, I mean, this guy, Robert Maxwell, died 20 years ago this year, right? Fell into the... 30, I'm 30. afraid. 30! I'm always bad at math, Ashley will tell you this. So bad at math. 30 years ago, fell into the ocean, still unsolved, whether it was a suicide or death or an accident. And yet he continues to sort of like cast his shadow on, on our world, right? I
2: guess we, one of the things that fascinated me about Maxwell was that certainly in the UK, he's still seen as the embodiment of corporate villainy. He raided the, uh, the Daily Mirror's pension funds, thereby depriving a lot of people of prospect of a tranquil and reasonably prosperous old age. And it was as if... You know, it was as if so much kind of black paint had been tipped over his head that he'd been turned into a kind of pantomime villain. And I guess I just wanted to see, really, if he was as black as he's, you know, posterity has painted him or was he, as actually turned out to be the case, a more nuanced
1: and, in some respects, tragic figure. What would you say is is, is this guy's hold on our imagination?
2: Well, there aren't that many people who lead really vivid technicolor lives. And Maxwell, a bit like Trump, was a tremendous mythomaniac. But actually, even if you strip the myths away, self-created myths, then the story is pretty remarkable. He was born in this remote village in western Czechoslovakia, as it then was. There was a large Jewish population in this village. He left age kind of 16 to go off and seek his fortune, and three of his siblings, both his parents and his grandfather, all died in Auschwitz. And you know, that's really the kind of prism that you have to try and view Maxwell through. And he then became the world's largest publisher of scientific um, journals and essentially tried to become the biggest media baron in the world. So for me, I guess the appeal was it seemed like a story which was a strange version of Citizen Kane and the Great Gatsby rolled into one. Yeah, and, and I think that's a perfect way to describe it. And, and, and what, is, what is the tension inside of a guy like this? I think this story of Maxwell's life, it's like a terrible morality tale of someone for whom nothing was ever enough. And you have this sense, this escalating sense as he grows older, where of him desperately seeking this kind of elusive thing that's going to give him a measure of contentment and fulfilment. And of course, he never finds it. It's just perpetually out of reach. And yet, you know, he did achieve, in many respects, astonishing things. But whether that ever kind of plugged this sort of yawning gap at the heart of him, I rather doubt
1: yeah I mean, it is, a, it is a great emptiness, right, which is, 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 is one seeks to fill. I mean, we as writers, like that's what we see in these people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah It's also the story of someone
2: backing themselves into this terrible corner, where he was involved in this kind of titanic rivalry with Rupert Murdoch for 30 years, and in seeking to prove that he belonged within the same arena as Murdoch he kind of sowed the seeds of his own mental and physical disintegration, his downfall, and and actually,
1: ultimately, his death. Well, let's talk about his death. Tell us the name of the boat that Mr. Maxwell fell off of to his death in the Atlantic Ocean. He he fell off
2: his boat called the Lady Ghislaine, named after his youngest and favourite child, who, of course, has been much in the news lately, and will doubtless continue to be much in the news for some time to come. And in the early hours of November the 5th, 1991, Maxwell disappeared off the back of the Lady Ghislaine, and either he was pushed, or he jumped, or he slipped and fell, um, there, there's lots and lots of uh, theories that he was bumped off And certainly there was a there you know, long queue of people who would have itching to bump him off by this stage Mossad are the kind of, for some reason, always reckoned to be the prime candidates here I have found no plausible evidence that he was bumped off at all As to whether he committed suicide, a lot of the people that I interviewed, including Rupert Murdoch, are convinced that he did commit suicide and certainly At this stage, Maxwell was due to fly back to London later on that morning, where he was kind of going to face the equivalent of three firing squads. I mean, the police were after him, the banks were after him for defaulting on numerous loans, and the mirror pension funds had realised that he'd been looting the pension pot. So if it was an accident... In some respects, it was an astonishingly fortuitous accident. My suspicion is, I feel that if one can plausibly sort of blur the line between suicide and an accident, that is probably where the answer lies.
0: You know, it's interesting, John, because here in the States, we we first sort of came to Maxwell through his daughter. And it's such fortuitous timing that your book is coming out right now. Can you tell us a bit about how it's been received and sort of the differences in reception in the UK versus in the States?
2: You know, Maxwell was much more of a kind of mythical figure in the UK. Um, I mean, he tried to be a a really big player in the US uh, and obviously he bought the New York um, Daily News and he bought the Macmillan, the publishers, but he never quite occupied centre stage there as he did here. I think that the perception of him here is that he was a very bad man. And I'm not seeking to dispute that but as I said earlier I think he's a more of a kind of nuanced ogre there's a
1: photograph we have in in the in the issue in in airmail of Ghislaine claiming his body on the tarmac as it's coming off the the plane after it's been and I mean it's a very powerful photograph and it just shows I mean really encapsulates to me she's the only one in the family of the of all the kids who comes to claim the body yeah The ship that her father fell off his name for him. How do you see whatever sins of him visited upon her? I mean, you know, just look, when you look at her, what do you see? Is it that's how she's ended up in in Jeffrey Epstein's orbit? I mean, what, what if you had to spin it out?
2: Essentially, the week that Ghislaine was born, the oldest child, Michael Maxwell, who was the heir apparent, the oldest of originally nine children, was very badly injured in a car accident and was in a coma for seven years before he died. And that really is the moment at which the family starts to break apart. And hitherto, they've actually been pretty on the whole happy family. And from that moment on, that the kind of cracks really start to appear. Um, and so... Ghislaine was completely ignored when she was born because of this kind of black cloud of Michael's car accident. So much so that when she's kind of four years old, goes and see her mother and stamps her foot and says, mummy, I exist. And what's interesting in terms of her trajectory is that having been on, as it were, the outside of the family circle, she then becomes her father's favourite. And she does that by, in part, being very good at diffusing Maxwell's anger. And I think Ghislaine rode that much better than anyone else. She was good at flattering her father. She could charm her father. So she was a great people pleaser to that extent. I think that she she had something of her, has something of her father's toughness. Um, She may well be the child who's most like him in terms of character. Um, And it seems a kind of terrible irony that she's, as it were, inherited the mantle. I mean, Maxwell always quite liked the idea of siring a dynasty, but he didn't obviously see it in quite such
1: terms as it's turned out.
0: Talk about irony in this story.
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of irony, John, so one of the details that I learned looking at the book, reading the book, is so after the yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, was sold a few years ago, correct? Yeah. And tell us who bought that yacht in a very narrative twist.
2: When I went to see Murdoch, who was surprisingly willing and you know, happy to talk, and it turns out I think he'd liked A Very English Scandal. I, think he, I don't think he'd read the book. I think he'd seen it on TV. And, you know, he gave me an hour of his time. He was very obliging. And as I was leaving, he said, oh, you know, the strangest thing happened. And, uh, and he told me about how his ex-wife Anna a few years earlier I think about three years earlier had been looking for a yacht to buy, and uh, James Murdoch, who's a keen sailor, said, "Oh, well, look, you know, I'll I'll help you find one." So he went off and he found this boat, which uh, called the uh, the Mona K, I think think, called, and she paid something I think fourteen and a half million dollars for it, something like this, and and she was d- delighted with it, and it wasn't until after she bought the yacht, that they found out that the name had been changed several years before that, and it was originally the Lady Ghislaine. I mean, it's such a strange thing, given how closely their fates were entwined over 30 years. And of course, they even shared the same initials. So it's this absolutely bizarre thing of, um, uh, which drove Murdoch nuts.
0: John, your your 2007 uh, novel, The Dig, has just come out as a, a beautiful drama directed by Simon Stone, and it reimagines the events of the 1939 excavation of Sutton Hoo. So, um, first of all, what do you think of the movie?
2: I really like it. I mean, I, I really like it. I'd probably lie and say I really liked it, even, even if I didn't like it, but I genuinely do like it.
1: That's because you're British. Of course you would
2: just say
0: <laughs> everything's so great. Light, Michael.
2: <laughs> when I first thought of the book, I kind of always had this vague idea in the back of my head that I wanted to do a kind of buried treasure story for grown-ups. And I suppose the fact that they found the, 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 the gold and the ship at Sutton Hoo in the summer of 1939, so they basically uncovered this lost civilization at a time when people's own civilization looked as if it was about to be blown out of the
1: waters. Well, John, it's it's a, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on on program to talk about uh, the Maxwell book, which is out right now. And everyone, I encourage everyone to read because it, it is a real, as you said, if, if the dig was a modern day buried treasure story for adults, this is a kind of um, great modern day Citizen Kane. It's, it's, it's terrific. So um, I encourage everyone Fantastic. to read Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you, John. If you love suspense novels, if you can't put down a true crime novel, this is the book for you. You may recall reading stories in the news about parents keeping children imprisoned in their homes. And there was the story a few years ago of the Turpin family in California, which had 13 children in captivity. Well, in Girl A, Abigail Dean reimagines what life is like for the teenage girl who manages to escape, how she rebuilds her life. It's an unforgettable novel, and it's Abigail's very first. And she wrote it when she was working full time as an attorney. She sold the book for seven figures, and it's a page turner. I spent my entire day on Sunday with Abigail Dean, not actually with her, but I was reading her addictive, beautifully written new book. It's called Girl A, and it was just released in the U.S. this week. And we are so fortunate we've got Abigail here to speak with us about the novel that is taking the literati by storm. So welcome, Abigail.
3: Thank you so much. Um, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So first things first, you are still an attorney? Do you still have a lawyer? You still have a day job?
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, I am still a lawyer for, for Google.
0: And how long have you been a closet novelist?
3: I think for a very long time, to be honest. So I I was definitely one of those kids who was like sort of borrowed away um, working on my novel, you know, at the age of eight um, and presenting it to my parents, um, you know, like a few sheets of A4 paper stapled together. In terms of sort of Later on in life, um, I I didn't write very much for really the 10 years before I started working on Girl You know, I, I think I sort of thought of it as a bit of a pipe dream. And so I guess being a closet novelist only sort of really happened in kind of the last two, three years.
1: In some ways, this is kind of inspired by real events, right?
3: and I think that was in a way one of the things that I really wanted to explore in A. it it was this idea of of true crime and sort of cases that become very famous on the basis of particular images or headlines and and I I was just really interested in what happens after that um, and what happens in the sort of aftermath both the immediate aftermath and in the case of A, which kind of stretches on 15 years after After the escape, um, by which point, you know, the children that were, that that became famous as a result of this escape and their parents' crimes, what happens in the months and then the years that follow? And and what does that look like? You know, when you've got so much life left to live, if something like this happens to you as a child or or as a teenager, how do you live with it for the rest of your days, really?
0: What was it like, actually, uh, Abigail, in the process of writing this novel? I mean, this is pretty dark headspace to live in as a reader what was it like as a writer
3: there were there were definitely a few sleepless nights Ashley I'll definitely say that I found actually that I couldn't necessarily work on it too late um because sometimes i'd i sort of be a bit haunted by the characters, and you know I think they get into your in into your head and and it's very difficult to detach from from where you've left them in a way. I think the sort of comfort and the consolation I had was that Lex, who is girl A in the book you know the the girl who escapes her voice throughout I think is a really sort of strong, resilient. Um, voice
1: it's it's one of the things that just resonated with me is the the power of these teenage girls that we see in these kinds of environments and and how they transcend these horrible things that happen to them
3: yeah i'm so glad that you took um, that from from A because that's how I feel as well. Um, Just the sort of, I I think I'm often just slightly in awe of the power of of teenage girls. And and that was certainly the case in Lex's escape and also in her sort of resilience in the years that follow. You know, I think she has this kind of real imagination, which allows her to survive in some ways within the house.
0: So your novel came out in the UK in January, which is traditionally a month when a lot of publishers debut books they think are going to be really big. So tell us a bit about how your life has changed since 2020. (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's. I think it's just as sort of surreal and wonderful as as you maybe imagine. I mean, to be talking to you guys today is is just incredible and uh, and fantastic. Uh, one of the strange things I think about being published at present is that in the UK we're still under a really strict lockdown, so it feels like things have changed hugely. Um, you know, in having the book and the characters out there in the world, but. On the other hand, it's kind of, I'm, I'm still just celebrating with my husband and my cat. <laughs>
1: the first page of the, of, of the novel is one of the best first pages I've ever read in a long time. I mean, you want to talk about just a grabber.
3: Thank you very much. That's amazing to hear. And yeah, the, the, the opening page is sort of this description of a photograph of the Gracie family and that becomes kind of iconic in terms of the press attention. It was one of those things that I did write very early on. Um, that, you know, it was always intended to be the opening. And I think it was a case of revisiting it just to add those little details of the house, um, because the house where um, where the children are kept and where the parents' cult kind of develops, that was something that changed a bit over time. I think it it became gradually more and more of a character in its own right. And so I think a lot of the revision of that first page was ensuring that the house was a feature of this photograph and, you know, kind of capturing the shadows that that come from its windows and doors and and elements like that. Um, So that right from the beginning that the house of has a little life of its own.
0: All right. Well, thanks again, Abigail. We so appreciate it. And it was great to speak with you.
3: No, thank you so much. And thank you for reading Girl A as well. Um, That's incredible. So thanks so much.
0: So, you know, Michael, one of my favorite things I do at Airmail is I edit travel. And I have been very bored on that front over the past year, but I'm delighted to report Alec Lebrano, who's one of our marvelous writers based in Paris, who covers food and travel and all kinds of wonderful things and culture, has visited a really smart new hotel in the Loire Valley. Now, many of us have been to, you know... Do you think you know the Loire Valley? You've been to Chenonceau. You've been to Chambord. But, like, it's never really been known for its hotels. And there's a wonderful new hotelier named Jérôme Tourbier, and he opened a 49-room country house hotel called Les Sources de Cheverny, which is uh, on a beautiful 90-acre estate outside of Cheverny, which is a small town two hours south of Paris. And, you know, that area used to be really stuffy and kind of boring, and he's opened this just splendid new hotel with a few fabulous restaurants, a uh, swimming pool. I mean, it's absolute heaven and I can't wait to get there. I think it's going to be first on my list when we can travel.
1: I'm, I'll be with you because all things French. And I bet the people there don't eat lunch at their desk.
0: <laughs> Definitely not. No, they're eating at a great little restaurant on property called Le Michael, what do you have for us? Please give give me a way to pass these long hours.
1: Okay. Golden Globe nominations came out this week, right?
0: It was a while ago. You're very behind.
1: Okay. All right. So, but speaking behind, some people I think are behind in things because, you know, you just sort of like things come out, they fall through the cracks, blah, 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 right? And there was a film that came out that got uh, nominations for director, for star, for writing. And it's a, it's a film I just want to steer people back to because I, I brought it up to a, me, a number of people and they're like, I don't know this movie. So I thought like, well, that needs to be corrected. So if you've seen it, great. If not, Highly recommend it. Have you seen the forty-year-old version?
0: The forty-year-old version, no.
1: Okay, the forty-year-old version, and by version I mean not virgin. I mean version, V E R S I O N, came out late last fall. Uh, written by and starring Rada Blank. I love this movie so much. You know, in it she she plays a forty-year-old playwright who was sort of a star when she was thirty, and she spent the last ten years kind of trying to come up with her um follow-up not successfully she's now teaching drama to a bunch of kids up in the bronx trying to figure it out and her mother has died she's frustrated she decides maybe i should become a rapper it's a movie that when i watched it i felt like i was watching this combination of spike lee she's gotta have it woody allen's manhattan and almost like this, you know, early Fellini, pure small Italian realist, neo realist stories. It's so beautiful. It's so funny. Every character in it is drawn with love, and the performances are all brilliant. And I can't recommend it enough.
0: That is quite the endorsement, Michael. I have my marching orders for tonight.
1: You know, it's it's also this beautiful kind of love letter to New York right now. It's it's wistful. It's funny, and I think also that it's filmed in black and white gives it this poignancy that uh, I think will just make you love this city all over again. Makes you uh, think about the the creative energy that that fills this city and fuels it. So can't recommend it enough.
3: Well,
0: thank you, sir.
1: I was thinking, and and you know this this film, forty year old version, made me think of someone a great life that happened this week someone who passed away uh ricky powell many of you know him he was kind of like the fourth beast fourth beastie boy he died this week he was 59 years old and he was often referred to as the fourth beastie boy but also as the lazy hustler he just took photographs back in the early days of hip-hop at this moment when hip-hop there are these great shots he did of run dmc and um, the Beastie Boys on tour in Europe in 1987. And Fab Five Freddy said, you know, everyone compared him in some way to Ron Galella, the original paparazzo here in New York. But you know, Fab Five says he really was more like Ouija, and he was this kind of intersection of uh, a, a guy who just hung out and took photographs. And, and you know, it's it's. I think anyone should should take a look at his work because you know now we're used to everyone sort of being so self conscious and taking photographs of getting themselves in it. And he was just documenting this moment when this hip-hop was created, was being created and uh, the whole culture, the music. And uh, he also was on the New York nightlife scene. There's these great shots of Cindy Crawford, Madonna, uh, when they're young in the late 80s coming up. There was a movie that was filmed of him that I think was supposed to come out at Tribeca Film Festival last year. It's delayed. But a true original, one of those people that, you know, we talk about lately, like, What's being lost in New York right now? Who are we losing uh, in COVID when people move out? And this is one of those guys, born and bred New Yorker. And I hope if you take a look at at, at his work online, you'll see someone who was sort of, again, feeding that creative spirit of New York. And I hope more people, he attracts more people like him to come to New York.
0: I mean, Michael, we need it.
1: Yeah, more than ever, right?
0: We need it more than ever. As you know, I'm very bullish on New York. I think we've been so bored for the past- year that New York is going to be hotter than ever. Same is true for London. Same is true for Paris. I think same is true of every major metropolis, but um, we're feeling really good.
1: Yeah. And how about the, they're going to start doing these pop-up shows now here in New York City? Heaven. Right.
0: Yeah. Sign me up.
1: Bringing singing and Broadway sort of like stars to the, to, to pop-up events, just like almost like you get a you'll you'll stumble upon them and it's a way to get to theater and creative arts and performers back in front of people. So, more shot of life coming at us that's great
0: right perfect yep exactly
1: on that note would you like me to read us out
0: i guess michael i guess the weekend must start
1: Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Sandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.